Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. So good to gather together and uh, worship in the name of Jesus, and I'm excited to uh, get into the scriptures together with you this morning. Uh, but before we do, uh, I've asked uh, Nick to go ahead and uh, come up to the front and uh, just share a bit about uh, what God's been doing in his life over the last month or two. And we've been doing this over the last uh, five weeks or so, and I've been really encouraged by it. So um, I assume we'll just keep doing it. But um, yeah, Nick. Hey everybody, um, so where to start? Uh, I, I know that we've been hearing this a bit lately, and, and I'll, I'll talk about it again in a minute, um, but at a conference recently, uh, we, uh, there was a big group of us in Montana at a conference, and I had been really expecting something, something to happen and really praying for something to happen, praying something for something to change in me, but I didn't know what. Um, so uh, this, this is going to uh, closely, closely resemble Chris's story from a few weeks ago just because we, we, we matched notes and they were very similar, but uh, I, have, I have more after. Um, so so the, the teaching was from Steve Oliver. It was on Strongholds. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that he said that really kind of struck home is that the devil is not that impressive. Uh, it's, it's just, he's not. He's powerful, but not impressive. All that it takes to overwhelm the devil is the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all it takes. Um, and he was talking about strongholds and the way that, that even believers, followers of Christ, can still have the influence of the enemy in their lives. They can still have places that haven't, haven't received freedom yet. Um, and, you know, he's, he's given the... the the kind of the altar call at the end where he's talking about, okay, why don't everybody take a prayerful minute and, and list out the, the areas where you see strongholds in your life and then come up for prayer. And I really felt like I should come up for prayer. And I'm, I, uh, my wife will tell you I'm, I'm a huge rule follower. So I start making a list and writing it out. Okay, I need this and this and this. And I, I go up to the front and the guy's like, okay, well, what are you here for? And I'm like, well, um, I guess there's fear and pride and I list out like five or six things, and he's like, oh, is that all? Yeah, I, I guess. Um, so, and I'm sure he was a very nice man, and I'm sure he prayed very, very wonderful words. But from that point on, I remember nothing of what happened other than just God and myself. Um, I uh, had a revelation, that some, something I, I knew. Uh, some backstory. I had been fired for cause from a job that I had been touted as the best, you know, the best at that job. Uh, and it was something that I absolutely did not do, but I got fired for it. And the investigation afterwards showed that I had not done it and I came back, but that was a seed planted in my life. And, and I, God showed me how it had bled out into other areas of my life. Um, how that, that fear of something that I didn't even know was happening happening and then, and then hitting me um, had just absolutely 
impacted my entire life. My family, you know, fear for, for what could happen to my girls, fear for uh, health. You know, I, I call myself a mild hypochondriac. Um, I'm taking that back, though. Not anymore. Um, but uh, just, just fear for, for all kinds of things that were completely baseless had bled into my life from that one situation that I didn't know was going to happen. And that's, that's the, the way that the enemy can plant things in your life. It's not necessarily something you've done or something you're holding on to, but walls can come up around things that you wouldn't, wouldn't even plan for or expect. And uh, I, I didn't even ask for freedom for that. I went for freedom, but not from that. I didn't even know I needed it. Um, and then, then uh, I, I possibly cried harder than I have since I was, you know, four or five. And uh, there, there were points in time where I looked down and I could see tears, you know, dripping out of my face. But then um, I, I left that moment believing I was free from, from fear, believing that um, that's, that was not from God. I mean, <laughs> it's written, fear is not from God. Um, and, and the more I, I push into that freedom, the more I, I um, believe that I am free, uh, the more I can see the places that I've changed. Uh, I, I'm a completely different person in many different ways from that one moment with God. Um, I think I'm actually going to skip the other thing I was going to say because I, I want to go back to, to what I said first is at a conference. Um, I've actually been really convicted about that because who God is didn't change between the weeks before the conference that I was hoping something would happen at the conference and the three days at the conference. What God wants to do for me did not change between the three weeks that I was leading up to that conference and asking for something to happen at that conference and at that conference. Um, we can come on Sunday, every, every week, we can, we can sit in our home and believe that God has freedom for us. We can be here every week. There are people to pray for us here every week. And we can believe that freedom can come from this place, from any interaction, that God is here every Sunday. God is in our homes, and God can give us the exact same things he can give us at a conference. I know I, I, I have been noticing over the past few weeks that um, most of the people who stand up here say, well, I was, I was in Greece, or I was, I was in Montana, or you know, I was somewhere else. But God can move here. God can do that here. And that's, that's the thing that has been convicting me, is that I'm always looking to the outside. But this is where God wants to move. So, let's. Could you pray for us? Yeah. yeah. God, I thank you that, that you have put us all here together as a family. Um, I thank you that you want to use us. God, that you, you put us here for a reason. And that you want to reach out to this neighborhood and this city using this group of people. And God, I pray that you would move in this place. I pray that you would prepare our hearts, God. That you would... Uh, Make us expectant, God, that you would make us expectant for you to, to use us as agents of change in this world to bring your kingdom here on earth. Uh, I thank you for all that you've done for us in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nick. Wonderful. Um, well, if you uh, have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 1, verse 1. Uh, that's the very beginning of the New Testament, and we will pick up there in a bit. Uh, if you've been with us uh, for the last nine months, 
Uh, you know that we are most of the way through our series covering the Bible in one year. And when we started the series back in September, we invited the church, those of you who are here, to begin reading the Bible in one year uh, as we were then working through it on Sundays. And so if you think all the way back to September... We started a long series in the book of uh, Genesis, and we talked about uh, creation and the fall of humanity, and we talked about God's plan to rescue creation and to rescue humanity, but curiously, his plan to do it through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Through this single family line, uh, God promised to bring a a seed or descendant who would bless the nations and who would bring uh, humanity and creation back into into the purposes of God. Uh, The problem of fallen humanity, uh, of sin and death entering creation, this sort of curse hanging over creation, was somehow going to be solved in and through the descendants of Abraham. So that was the first sort of section of the series. And uh, from there, we launched into the next segment or the next series, which we called Prophets and Kings. And we used that series uh, to follow Abraham's descendants who become Israel. And we summed up large portions of the Old Testament by looking at Israel. Hey, why did Israel exist? What was the purpose of Israel? What was the covenant uh, all about? What was the purpose of the law? And, and, and how did Israel do under the covenant? And we looked this long line of uh, bad kings through uh, the story of Israel. And so we covered centuries worth of material in that series through the exodus and all of the ups and downs and entering the promised land and, and idolatry and all that the people are wrestling with through the Old Testament. Uh, From there, we launched into our most recent series, which we just finished last Sunday, which was on Isaiah and the prophets. Uh, And when you open the Old Testament, not only do you get this sort of historical from God's perspective view on Israel and how they're doing with the law and the covenant, but you also have all of these books in the Old Testament that are named after prophets or written by prophets. Um, and so we started examining those through the lens of Isaiah. Hey, what? who were the prophets? Uh, why are there so many books in the Old Testament uh, from the prophets? What was their role and what was their message? And a part of the answer to that, the answer that we gave is that the prophets uh, were people who were called and anointed by God to speak God's words in God's timing. And most of those words were for Israel. They were saying, hey, you're breaking the covenant that your ancestors made on Mount Sinai. You're worshiping idols. You need to repent. You need to turn back to the creator God and come back into his purposes. You're going into exile. Exile is coming because you will not listen. You, Israel, sit central to this storyline. You are the descendants of Abraham. It's through you that God wants to bring redemption, and you're blowing it. But, the prophets say, hope is on the horizon. One day the Messiah will come. He will rescue God's people. He will be king, not just over Israel, but over all humanity. In fact, the scriptures say he will rule on a throne at the right hand of God for all time. There will be a new covenant that God will form 
which involves forgiveness, renewed hearts, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And one day, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. This was the message that the prophets brought. So that was a lot of information in a short amount of time, but that's the easiest way I can sum up kind of where we've been for the last nine months. And this morning, I have the rather difficult task of attempting to sum up the Gospels, all four of them, in one Sunday. Starting next week, we'll be in a series on the book of Ephesians. We'll cover every single verse in the book of Ephesians. Uh, And after that, we'll head into the fall, do the vision series, and the plan is to do an in-depth series on the book of Revelation as we kind of finish out our time studying the scriptures cover to cover. But uh, before we get there, uh, we want to talk about the gospel accounts. Um, Back when we planted the church uh, about three years ago, uh, we started in the book of Matthew, and we took two entire years just to cover one gospel account. So we took two years to do that, uh, and that's one of the reasons I think, okay, well, we spent two years kind of working our way through uh, the Gospels. I think I can get by with summing it up in a Sunday. But for those of you who are uh, new to church or new to the Scriptures, there are four Gospel accounts which start out in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these are um, firsthand, first-century reports uh, about who Jesus is uh, and what happened in and through him. And these um, simple accounts, they're not very long, generally speaking, and they have shaped the entire world. Jesus is hands down the most influential person in all of human history. And most of the information that we have about him, we get from these four accounts. But as I, I was kind of working my way, skimming my way through these accounts, if, you read the Bi- if you're reading the Bible in a year, you've just finished the fourth gospel on like Wednesday or something like that. So you're fresh out of reading four gospels back to back. And uh, I was kind of scanning back through them, but I was forced to ask, hey, how do I sum these up? Like, w- what is the story that the gospel accounts are telling? What is the message that the original authors were trying to convey? How can I sum up what they are trying to say? Clearly, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead are the climax of the story. And so if you're scanning through the gospel accounts, you'll notice that the last week of Jesus' life uh, takes up about a third of the entire narrative. So once you get to the last week, it slows way down because you're, you're coming into the center, coming into the holy of holies, into Jesus' death and resurrection. And so clearly that's the center. But the question I had to wrestle with this week is, what do you do with the rest? What do you do with the other 60 to 70% of the gospel content? What story are they trying to tell? What do they have to do with Jesus' death and burial and resurrection? Is it simply to capture the moral teachings of Jesus? What do you do with all of the miracles and the healings 
raising people from the dead. What, what's the point of all of that? Um, and I wrote out a few options. Is it, uh, is all of Jesus' life proof that he was divine? Proof that he was the son of God, because that's the only way to explain what happened through him. Uh, was it proof that Jesus led a sinless life and was therefore fit to be our sacrifice in our place for our sin? Was it written out as an example for us to follow? What it looks like to be a good person, to care for the poor and those in need? Is it simply a source of moral teachings? What is right and wrong in the universe? How should we behave? How should we navigate? Uh, is it a guidebook for how to get to heaven? Uh, just what is it that we're reading? Why did the gospel writers write the story that they did? What were they trying to convey? What story did they believe they were writing for the world to receive? These are the very light topics I've been wrestling with this week. And the answer, I believe, is a rather simple one. I believe that the story of the Gospels, the point of it all, is that Jesus is King. In fact, I believe the Gospels are the story of how the God of Israel became King over the world. And hopefully our journey through the prophets has prepared us for that conclusion. Because God had promised King David way back in the beginning of the story of Israel. He promised King David that one of his descendants would rule on a throne forever. And not just over Israel, but over the entire world. And so the story of the Gospels, in my mind, becomes the story of how God became that king of how he incarnated, took on flesh and blood to become the very king that he had promised from centuries before. It is the story of how God is becoming king over the earth as it is in heaven. We pick up in Matthew 1, uh, verse 1. This is what it says, the start of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. Anyone here love genealogies? I don't. If you're reading the Bible in a year, I will not condemn you for skipping over them. Why is this important? Why does it matter that Jesus is the son of Abraham? Well, all the way back in the beginning, God promised Abraham that one of his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations on earth. This image is set up of someone who will come to undo the work of the curse and the fall, who would fix the monumental problems set in motion in the third chapter of your Bibles. Uh, he would be the descendant of Eve who would come to crush the head of the serpent and end the war plaguing humanity. Okay, 
So it's important that Jesus is a son or descendants of Abraham. Why is it important that Jesus is the son or descendants of David? I'm not sure if that was the answer to my question or not. Well, because if you go all the way back to the beginning of the story of Israel, God promised that that descendant of David would one day come as king to rule on a throne forever. And and so by starting off the New Testament, by introducing his gospel account in this way, what he's saying is, he's here. The one whom the entire storyline of Scripture has been anticipating, begging for, waiting for, has finally arrived. And so this very first verse in the New Testament actually ties together a bunch of strands that we've been studying over the last nine months. And in fact, I think you can sum up the entire Bible in this way. Uh, Act 1, God creates a kingdom. And and within that kingdom, he creates image bearers uh, to co-rule as vice regents who, who will rule alongside him over creation. Act two, at the urging of the serpent or the adversary or the enemy, those, uh, co-re- those, those regents, those co-rulers, those image bearers rebel, plunging humanity and creation into chaos and death. Act three, God establishes a kingdom people Uh, starting with Abraham and ultimately through Israel. And he forms covenants with them that are to guide them in being his covenant people and joining with him in his rescue plan for humanity. And if you study those covenants, what you'll see is that within them, God was meant to be king. And and they're meant to to, to function within the covenants like subjects in a kingdom that are carrying forward the mission of that king. Uh, Act 4, which is what we're summing up today, God comes as king. I believe that's the story of the gospel accounts, that the king arrives, that God incarnates uh, to fulfill his promises. Uh, Act 5, in light of the gospel accounts, um, a new kingdom people are established. That's the church. That's you and me. And we'll study the book of Ephesians starting next week. It's, it's going to assume all of that stuff from the Gospels, that the King has come and that we are a new kingdom people. Uh, and finally, Acts 6, the King returns and the kingdom comes in full. That's the book of Revelation, which we'll study uh, through the fall. This is the story of Scripture. This is the story that your Bibles are attempting to tell. It's not random bits of wisdom and moral teaching. It's not a guidebook primarily on how to get to heaven. It's the story of God becoming king. If you have your Bibles open, you can flip over to the very next page, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're going to do a whirlwind tour of the first couple pages of Matthew because I, I want you to have a sense uh, of the Gospels, of what they're talking about, of, of what their aim and goal is, the message they're trying to convey. And I've only got a few minutes to do that. But what's Matthew 2 all about for those of you who have it open? 
Some of you have chapter headings at the top. What's it say? The Magi come to visit the Messiah. Why do they come? The text will tell you it is to honor Jesus as king. Glance over at Matthew chapter 4. What's that all about? The temptation of Jesus in the desert. Who is he facing in the desert? The devil. This is the description that the scriptures use to talk about Satan, the adversary, the devil, the one that Jesus is facing in the desert. The scriptures call him the God of this age and the ruler of this world. If you are going to come and claim yourself king over a new territory, if your kingdom is going to advance, the very first thing you need to do is depose the false king who who has set himself up as king over that area. You, You have to face him. You have to dethrone him. You have to conquer him as part of your kingdom advancing, as part of your kingship expanding into new territory over the earth. That's what's happening in the desert. And Jesus prevails. Glance down a little further, uh, down chapter 4. The next chapter heading that's there, in, in, at least in my NIV Bible, is Jesus begins to preach. Okay, so he, he's challenged, he's dethroned the ruler of this world, and, and now he has a message that he wants to share. And when the Son of God and the incoming King has a message or an announcement, you pay attention. What's he say? This is chapter 4, verse 17. He says, repent for the, what? The kingdom of heaven, or some of your translations say, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God. The place where God is king. The place where he rules and reigns. It's not just resigned to heaven though that's where he reigns most clearly. Now, Jesus says, his kingship, his rule and his reign, his kingdom is now breaking into this world. Now, God is in the process of becoming king over this place as he is in heaven. Heaven, Jesus says, and God's kingship is invading this reality. And it does. A few verses down your page. This is chapter 4, verse 23. I know I'm moving quickly, but I want you to get that, that bird's eye view, that sense of the story that they're telling. And we're almost done with that. This is chapter 4, starting in verse 23. I want you to just listen to this. This is the type of stuff Jesus was doing. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds came from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan. 
and followed him. What's happening in this passage? This is one of many that just sum up in broad strokes what Jesus is doing. But whenever I've read this, I've read it to just say, wow, Jesus was amazing and he's proving that he's divine. He's proving that he's the son of God. Because if he wasn't, then he's just one more Galilean guy who got crucified and he doesn't really matter. But if he's the son of God, then, then it has infinite importance. And so that's what he's doing, right? He's going around, he's working miracles to prove his identity to people. And I have no doubt that that's one of the things that is happening. But I'm going to push back a little bit and say that is not the primary thing that Jesus is demonstrating. I, I think Jesus is showing us what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes to earth. This is what it looks like when God's kingship, when heaven breaks into your reality. What's he doing? He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's telling people about this king and this expanding kingdom, and then he's showing them what it looks like. They're hearing about it, but they're tasting it, they're seeing it, they're watching it, they're experiencing the in-breaking kingdom. And so Jesus can, can stand up and say, the kingdom of God has now, you've just tasted it. It's expanding into this reality. If you glance down at chapter 5, you can see the chapter heading there. It's all about the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most famous sermon of all time. Uh, and, and we took months just kind of dissecting it as a community last year. The Sermon on the Mount. But the, the debate surrounding the Sermon on the Mount rages on. People look at this and say, what, what is this? What is Jesus teaching right now? What's he doing with those words? Is this a path that you can take to earn your way to heaven? Is he just laying out an impossible moral standard for human beings? Just to say, hey, look at this impossible standard. You'll never meet this. And now you know that you need me. These are, all, these are all established viewpoints on the Sermon on the Mount. Is he setting up some kind of works righteousness? Or is he simply highlighting human sin and our inability to be good in God's sight? And again, I'm going to push back against some of those views and say, no, Jesus is teaching about life in the inbreaking kingdom of God. This is what it looks like as the kingdom of heaven comes breaking into this world, and this is what my kingdom people look like. This is, this is their standard operating procedure. This is how they live out their lives. And you look at that and you say, especially for the original audience, they're saying, is it possible to actually live that way? Surely that's not possible. And I think some of what Jesus is saying is it wasn't possible until right now. Because now the kingdom of heaven is advancing into your world. The cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus are absolutely the center of the Gospels. But the Gospel accounts are telling one coherent story about God becoming king. 
How does God become king over creation? How does he defeat the dominion of darkness that set itself up over humanity? How does he defeat the power of sin? How does God defeat death itself and liberate humanity? If you want to know the answers to those questions, you have to go and read the gospel accounts because that's the story that they're telling. It's the, it's the story of him conquering Satan, sin, and death. Colossians says it this way. It says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Remember that universal problem that we started with nine months ago, all the way back in Genesis. He's saying, here's the solution. When you were dead, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That's that's describing the conquering of sin. Before Jesus, sin has power over us. In and through Jesus, God is becoming king over sin. He has power over it. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, which is biblical language for Satan and demons, having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, becoming king over them, How? By the cross. And then Jesus dies. And three days later, God resurrects him from the dead, conquering death itself. And now the writers of Scripture say, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Because up to that moment, it seemed that death had the last word. But when God comes as king, he not only raises people in different instances from the dead. Hey, I'm king over that. But he also makes a way for everyone who follows him to rise from the dead. For us, death is defeated. This is what it looks like when God's kingship breaks into this world, as his rule and his reign expands. What does Jesus say on the poster that's on the wall behind me? He came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is post-resurrection. All authority has been given to me. That's kingship language. I am now king over everything in heaven and over everything on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, go out in my power and authority and be the co-rulers that you saw back in Genesis that, that see the kingdom of God expand in and through them. The rest of the New Testament is just working out all of the implications of what happened in the Gospels, of what happened in and through Jesus. And we'll officially start in the book of Ephesians next week, but it's all going to happen in the shadow of the Gospels. 
in the shadow of God becoming king over Satan's sin and death. That's the only way anything in Ephesians is going to make any sense. What does it look like to live in this new inbreaking kingdom? Ephesians is going to help answer that question. So that's where we're headed, and that's how I would sum up the story of the Gospels in just a few minutes. But I'll end with this, uh, some simple questions that I want us to contemplate. First, what would it look like for God's kingdom to come in your life? And second, that's an inward-looking thing. And second, what would it look like for God's kingdom to come in the city of Spokane? That's the the outward-looking piece. And and because those questions are are a bit vague, I want to throw out a quick example for each of them. First, in my own life, as I look inwardly, I can see that God's inbreaking kingdom has changed every aspect of who I am. Within my realm of influence, within my experience as a human being, in my very DNA, Jesus has touched and changed everything. If I had never met Jesus, I would be locked away in some office cubicle, working in the wrong career, living out a purposeless existence as a narcissistic, self-centered, sexually addicted atheist. That was me when Jesus met me. And by the grace of God, I am not that man. That person is dead and gone. Jesus changed everything. I am a completely different human being because of the inbreaking kingdom of God that has touched my life. Jesus has changed me from the inside out. But you may be shocked to hear that I have not arrived yet. And I can still look around my life and see a completely transformed person, and yet I can still look around my life and I can see the way that I sometimes talk to my wife. I can see the way that I sometimes relate to my kids. I can see my own unwillingness to humble myself and share the gospel with those around me who I know are in desperate need of the gospel. But I just don't, I don't, I don't know. And, and so as I, as I read through the gospels and then look inwardly at my own life, I still have dozens of places where I can earnestly pray, God, your kingdom come and your will be done in my life, in my marriage, in my fatherhood, in my, in my realm, of, in my heart, in my, as it is in heaven. If you want a more specific example, I will confess in front of everyone that I am not a joyful and generous giver. And that's the New Testament call. That's the New Testament standard for giving. It's not 10%, though that can be useful for many of us. It's actually joyful and generous. And and in my giving, some of you are really good at that, and I'm learning. 
in my giving, I, I think more often I am determined and reluctant. It's like this thing that I just have to force myself to do and, oh, okay, fine, like here's 10%. Not, not joyful and often not necessarily generous. Okay, so, so when I see that, the New Testament call, what, who many of you are in this room, the way that you give joyfully and generously. And then I look at my own life, it's like, man, I, I need the kingdom of God to invade this area of my life, to invade my heart and my mind when, when it comes to finances, when it comes to giving, because I, I see what the kingdom looks like. The inbreaking kingdom looks like joyful and generous, not determined and reluctant and here, whatever. Okay, so, so I'm in process with that. And it's been years. I mean, it's been a long process. I think I'm slowly getting better at it. But it's, it, I need God's kingdom to come in that area. And I could go on and on and on. Okay, what does it look like for God's kingdom to come in your life? Likely you have specific examples that are, are probably different for many of you than my specific examples. But there's dozens. Then you turn outward and you say, what would it look like for God's kingdom to come in the city of Spokane? I pray for that on a regular basis. I was talking to my friend, uh, Andrew, a couple of days ago, uh, and he was telling me this story uh, about him and, and one of his pastor friends. And they went out recently uh, to have a drink uh, at a whiskey bar, uh, which now you know the story is going to be good because that's how good stories start, right? So him and, and his pastoral friend, they're both in the pastoral world. They, they go out to, to have uh, a drink at this uh, whiskey bar, and they're just chatting back and forth, no agenda, just hanging out. And um, these two people, a guy and a girl, co-workers, come and sit down next to them and just kind of at the next table over. And they start striking up a conversation, just being friendly, and you know, they're laughing back and forth. And they're a little ways into the conversation, 15, 20 minutes, uh, they're, they're both uh, drug reps. Uh, they sell legal drugs um, and um, very wealthy, top of, their, the top of their game. She's from San Francisco. He's from San Diego. They travel all over the country making probably millions of dollars. And they, they strike up a conversation. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's what you guys do. Hey, what do you guys do? And he said, oh, we're, uh, we're pastors, actually. Instantly, guard goes up. Hostility comes out. Oh, I, I bet you voted for Trump, didn't you? Oh, I bet you're homophobic, aren't you? Oh, oh, I bet you're one of those people that think Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. Oh, I bet you're on and on, just venting at them. And, and so very graciously, they start kind of responding and working through. Say, hey, why do you have to say Jesus? That's so alienating. Why don't you just say God? Well, here, here's, here's why. And they start over the course of two hours. They start kind of laying things out and graciously answering the questions. And oh, here's how we see things from our perspective. Here's why I'm a follower of Jesus. And as they're almost two hours in, my buddy Andrew felt like he got a prophetic word for the male coworker. And so he's like, and how do you do that? Like, how do you, like, it's hard for most of us to share that like in church when we're all praying for it. And so he's like, uh, I don't know how you're going to receive this, uh, but I feel like what God might want to say to you is, 
and, and just drop something super specific regarding this guy's marriage. And his head just falls off. I mean, literally like hits the table. He's just, he's just undone. And, and when he finally collects himself, he says, how, how did you know that? How could you possibly know that? And, and Andrew said, it's not, it's not me. Like, it's really not me. Like, it's, it's Jesus. Like, he's, he's alive. He's here. And so um, Andrew and, and his friend, they start praying over this guy, right? Like, hey, can we, can we just pray for you? And so they start praying over this guy. And as they're praying, the, the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit just starts to fill up this place, a whiskey bar on a Monday night. And, and, and the atmosphere just starts to change as they're praying over this guy. And then the, the female coworker, all of a sudden, in the middle of when they're praying for him, she jumps to her feet and says full volume in the middle of the whiskey bar, oh my gosh, you're making me a Christian. I'm becoming a Christian right now. No joke. And her arms like shoot out to the side and just palms up. And she's just like there, like in the presence of God. And, and they turn around, they're like, they're, they're more shocked than anyone else in the whiskey bar. Like, what, what's happening right now? So then they go over and start praying for her. And Andrew's buddy gets a prophetic word for her. And, and they're praying over, and they lead both of them to Jesus right there in the middle of the whiskey bar. And, and I was, he, he was processing this with me, and I was, I was just in shock. I was like, how, Andrew, how? Like, how does that happen? What is that? And, and he said, it was the most powerful, demonstrative act of the kingdom of God that I've ever seen in my life. And he's been a passionate follower of Jesus for years. He says, I've never seen anything like it. What, what is that, Andrew? That, that's the kingdom of God breaking into this world. And for a moment, Jesus is king. He's king over that whiskey bar. And his kingdom is advancing in, in the most unlikely of places. What does it look like for God's kingdom to come in the city of Spokane? hundred different answers to that, but, but, but I need to expand my thinking. At one point, uh, the disciples see all of this stuff happening through Jesus. They see all of it, and they come to him, and they say, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Because I don't pray like you, and I don't see all of this stuff happen. And, and his answer to that is so commonplace that it's become mundane. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, who fully rules and reigns up there, your, what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in Spokane, in this place, in my life, as it is in heaven. How sad that that has become mundane. How sad that that means almost nothing to us who have been following Jesus for years. It, it, it's emptied itself 
of its meaning. When the kingdom of God comes, everything changes. Everything. Let's pray. You know what? Uh, I think rather than having me pray, I'll invite Annie back up to the front. But I think what I'd like to do is I think I'd like us to pray, if that's okay with you guys. Uh, and if you're new to church or you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or this is your first time gathering with us, you don't, you don't have to pray. You don't have to say anything out loud. But, but what I think I'd like to do is, is to, to just gather up in little groups um, just, just for a few minutes. We don't have a lot of time. Let's just circle up with the people around us. Hopefully you met them earlier. You know their names. And let's just pray in the simplest way that we can, with faith, with expectation, with real desires in mind, God, would, would your kingdom come and your will be done in Spokane as it is in heaven? And, and my guess is there's going to be specific things that that means to you. For some of you, that's actually praying over refugees. For some of you, that's praying over sex trafficking. For some of you, that's praying over the brokenness. In, in families or in your family in particular? What does it look like when you, God gave you an imagination for a reason? This is, this is something beautiful that he gave human beings. What, imagine what would it look like for God's kingdom to come in this city, in this neighborhood, as it is in heaven? And, and let's just take two minutes, three minutes, whatever we can to pray into that. And then I'll jump back up and, and I'll open the tables. Um, but let's go ahead and stand up. Let's just circle up and just spend a few minutes. Let's pray over West Central. Let's pray over the city of Spokane, knowing what's possible for King Jesus in this place.